Welcome to the Health Bites Podcast. This podcast features expert speakers presenting on topics of interest to all of our listeners, from librarians, public health practitioners, educators, and clinicians. Health Bites is supported by the National Institutes of Health, the National Library of Medicine, and the Network of the National Library of Medicine, Region 3. For more information, please visit us at www.nnlm.gov. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us for July's edition of Health Bites with Region 3. We are pleased to welcome this month's speaker, Dr. Annabel Rodriguez. Dr. Annabel Rodriguez is the proud daughter of Mexican immigrants and migrant farm workers from the Rio Grande Valley and an, and an assistant professor in epidemiology at the UT Health Houston School of Public Health. Outreach Program Director for the Southwest for Occupational and Environmental Health, and serves as Core Director for the Preparedness of Small Rural Healthcare Systems at the Texas Epidemic Public Health Institute. For the past nine years, Dr. Rodriguez's research and outreach efforts have focused on improving occupational health and well being among immigrant agricultural working populations. Most recently, her work has focused on identification and prevention of tuberculosis, healthcare access and barriers, vaccine preventable infectious diseases, and facilitating on-farm vaccinations for agricultural workers and their families in the, tax, in the Texas Panhandle, Rio Grande Valley, and El Paso. On her free time, she enjoys hiking with her two golden doodles, Shiner and Tejas, and husband Grady. In today's Health Bites, our speaker will give the presentation on farm health screening needs of immigrant dairy workers in the Texas Panhandle and South Plains. Thank you for being our guest speaker this morning, and I will turn everything over to you. Thank you, Brandon. Done, and I think I should be sharing now. And I should be unmuted. Yes, yes, correct. <laughs> All right. Um, buenos dias a todos. Good morning. As Brandon said, I, I really pride myself for um, having immigrant parents and, and being able to work um, back with this community. And it's an absolute privilege. I come from a long line of ag workers in my family from uh, my great grandparents being braceros during World War II in this country to um, my grandparents in, in the valleys of California, my parents in Bakersfield, and then uh, I didn't stop there. I was also, you know, not too long ago in the fields picking grapes, onions, watermelons in the valley. Um, and so this is really near and dear. And I, and I share this with you so that you understand where my passion comes from and why I love to do this work. And it just, I wake up every day, just really excited to, to share. Um, I do have a clock right next to me, so I'm gonna stay on track because I can talk about this forever. So today we'll try to, um, this is almost like a 101, right? We'll try to, really go through social demographics, occupational characteristics, um, which is something that I do as an occupational epidemiologist, really trying to find the, the health, safety, and well-being issues in, in, the, uh, in the ag industry. And in particular, this, this presentation is going to focus on dairy farm workers. So I kind of flip-flop between um, doing work with dairy farm workers uh, bodega workers, farm workers, migrant farm workers, H2A visa workers, logging machine operators. So I do a lot of the um, the ag forestry and and I haven't done the fishing yet, but we just got a colleague who who's going to start doing some work. And so we're really excited to work with her um, out of Galveston. Uh, we're going to review some of the on on farm health risks, right, that are associated with um, certain tasks and occupations. Uh, as well as the needs that a lot of dairy farm workers have in the Texas Panhandle. And I, I, we focused in this area, and I'll share a little bit more about it in the next slide, uh, because this is where most of the farms are. We call it the Eastern New Mexico Texas Panhandle Milkshed. 
Um, and if you, you know, take the panhandle and just draw a circle and go into Eastern New Mexico, that's where you'll find a lot of the dairy farms um, and, and top, really top three producing in, in the nation. And then we'll interpret some of these findings, right? And, and see how we could use these findings for evidence-based evidence planning, uh, which we have used for a larger R01 that we started this year to really improve the health and well-being of dairy farm workers and addressing these uh, barriers to health that you know, are often come when you're organizing on-site events. So before we get to the next slide, um, I'd like to keep things nice and, and entertaining here. We have a poll for you. Um, and I, I want you to, to let me know in this poll what you think are the most common systemic barriers to health services among dairy farm workers in the Texas Panhandle. And you can check all that apply. So we'll give you a couple seconds here. Cool, so the answer to this is pretty much all of them. Um, and, I'll, and I'll give you kind of an idea of what we have found here. So a lot of the reported needs in this area have been diabetes type two, hypertension, hypercholesteremia, um, lots of musculoskeletal pain, which you can imagine, right, from uh, working and milking on the farm for 12 hours at a time, doing day shifts and night shifts, um, lots of dental hygiene need, uh, undiagnosed, untreated mental health disorders, as well as a lot of social isolation. Um, again, kind of thinking and putting ourselves in the shoes of someone who lives in the panhandle, right, where the nearest store is miles away or the nearest community center or church might be miles away and, and you're not very familiar with the area. And so to, to really back up that, that poll here, a lot of the systemic barriers to health services um, really start with cost, the lack of health insurance. Um, it's not, you know, providing health insurance in the ag industry is not a requirement. Um, a lot of employers have started to do it. I think right after COVID, um, what a lot of employers realized was that they had to have healthy workers and a healthy workforce in order to be productive and to be a healthy business, right? And keep and keep the turnover rate pretty low. Um, and so some have started to the more progressive um, employers, but we're still lacking behind. And I'll, and I'll show some of those stats in, in a couple of slides down. You have communication, uh, cultural and literacy barriers, right? A lot of uh, workers speak Spanish. Uh, we're seeing now an increase of Guatemalan Quiche speaking populations in the panhandle um, that don't speak Spanish. And so it's meeting workers really where they are on, on the communi communication level, but also cultural level, right? Because medicine is very different in Mexico as it is in Central America, as it is here, right? Our westernized uh, medicine. Um, and then literacy as well. Most of, of, of the workers that we, we work with have uh, no formal to a third grade level education. And so making sure that, again, we are meeting workers where they are um, when, when they're trying to access um, health services in the States. They have conflicting work schedules. I just mentioned, yes, workers do milk 12 hours a day. There is a night shift and a day shift because cows have to be milked you know, two to three times a day 24 hours a day, seven days a, a week, 24, you know, 365 days a year. There is a the lack of childcare, um, right, in the area or just being able to afford childcare, which goes back to cost, limited knowledge of health center locations. This is some, this is a gap that we're trying to fulfill with um, a couple of resource lists, again, that I'll, I'll share in a bit. And I'm, I'm just really excited and I'm really advancing myself here. Um, on the slides that I have, uh, lack of specialty services, right? In the Panhandle, the biggest hubs are either Amarillo or Lubbock, uh, which can be a distance away from the small little towns like Milshu, Friona, Hereford. Um, transient lifestyles, there's a lot of migration, there's a lot of turnover, a lot of movement. So it can be very hard to get, again, get acclimated with the community that you have. Um, and then lastly, and probably most importantly, is the, the fear of law and immigration enforcement. Right, we saw uh, back in 2017 a lot of ice raids in the area, really impacting the dairy industry and um, really shaking the the community in that area. Right, and having fear to just go to the Walmart to get some food. Um, so keeping these in mind is how we will move forward um, into into this presentation. 
So a little bit of 101, right, of the dairy industry for those of you who um, have never been on a farm or are not familiar with the dairy industry. Um, and this is very particular to the US, especially Western US, but this data here is mostly from that Eastern New Mexico, Texas Panhandle milk shed. And, um, and so we'll just keep that in mind as well. As I mentioned, this is not seasonal. So you don't have migrant farm workers or seasonal workers coming in, milking, and then leaving for the summer. They milk cows two to three times a day. This is a year round thing. Um, some some of the, the farms have 12 hour shifts. Some of the farms have eight hour shifts where they you know milk either three times a day or two times a day. Um, so it really never stops. It, it's an integrated system with really a lot of inherent health and safety hazards, right? So it's very injury prone. You have a lot of slip trips and falls, you have uh, skin diseases, you have um, you know animal handling accidents where someone's pinned or kicked. Um, and so again, there's a lot of opportunity for education on health and safety and well-being um, because of these different this, these different tasks. 99% um, of the farms are family owned and operated, but there is a high dependency on foreign labor. So those who are owning these farms are not necessarily the ones who are out milking or feeding or keeping the day-to-day -day run of, of the farm. And, and we've seen an increase in um, H-2A visas, which are the ag visas that come in um, anywhere from six to, to 10 months at a time. They cycle through, go back to Mexico, touch back again, a little bit like the Bracero program, right? Coming into work and then coming back out. The worker predominantly immigrant, Hispanic male, 30, 35 years of age, limited English proficiency, uh, limited formal education, limited literacy, and living below the poverty level. And so with all of these characteristics in mind, it really paints this, this really vulnerable working population. Um, and what we found was that there was a need to really characterize right their occupational profiles their living profiles, their economic conditions, and determine what specific health needs, right? And, and the feasibility of hosting on-farm events to, to try to look at um, different health risks and do these screenings on-site. So this was a very, very simple pilot study that we did. We surveyed 300 dairy farm workers. Um, and for those who do big epi data sets, 300 seems like nothing. But these are very hard to reach workers. So we have to dig and really be out there, boots on the ground, work with community uh, based organizations, work with promotoras in the area, work with dairy extension, work directly with the employers to access workers at their place of employment to be able to be surveyed, right, for 20, 30 minutes. Um, this represented 22 large herd farms in the panhandle. Getting into one farm is very hard. So you can imagine 22 um, was, was a lot of work, but very much worth, worth the time. The survey had uh, 20 social demographic questions, 13 healthcare needs assessment questions. Um, and these were adopted from the National Agricultural Worker Survey, as well as the NIOSH Wellbeing Survey. So NIOSH is the, the research component to OSHA, right? OSHA is the enforcement side and NIOSH is the research, more surveillance. Um, so they have a well-being survey that's that's really um, has been validated and, and tested. And so that there's some really good questions um, in there that, that we were able to use to, to really look for, for these profiles, right? Um, data collection, again, was was a little bit weird because this um, this project started April 1st of 2020. So you can imagine we were all at home um, and I was freaking out a little bit because we were about to take our first trip out um, and that obviously did not happen uh, because of the pandemic. And so we, we quickly shifted to doing phone calls until uh, the beginning of 2021 where we were able to actually go out there. And that's where we, we were able to get most of our surveys because people, you know, especially workers were not, were very reluctant to answering our phone calls, right? And answering personal questions um, and consenting over the phone. So it's it's really easy to do this in person. Um, quick 15, 20 minute survey, and we gave them a $10 gift card from Walmart, which is, you know, uh, the stores that are around in the area for taking this. 
So here are some of the, the results for the social demographic characteristics. We found, again, very similar to, to the data that I showed you because this is data from you know, the past eight, nine years, mostly immigrant Hispanic males um, having been in the States anywhere between only five days. Um, and I remember exactly who this was and in the call was actually a couple of guys who had just been there five days to 44 years. So really big range. Um, age, again, between 30 to 35, so the average was 34.4, um, very big range, again, from 18 almost to 80-year-olds still working um, on the farm, and believe me, they work extremely hard. Um, middle school, elementary level education for the majority of workers, mostly Spanish-speaking, uh, but we saw a, a small percentage of Quiche-only speaking um, in, this, in, in, this, in this particular uh, surveyed or sampled population, we've seen anywhere between 22 to 44 percent. So it really varies depending on the area um, that that you survey in. As far as occupational profiles, uh, most of them were milkers. So as you see here, the picture on the left side, uh, that right there is a milker on a carousel. So there's three configurations on on a farm. There's parallel. So there's it's a parlor right where the the cows come in straight. Um, then there's herringbone, where they kind of come in um, at a tilt side. Uh, that's the more antiquated version of, of the, the parlors. But this right here is a carousel. So they come on, and that carousel spins around. Um, and as they clean the teats, they strip the teats, they put on the attachments. So these right here are your, um, your cluster attachments that go on each uh, cow teat end. They milk for about 10 minutes, then they remove it probably about two to three gallons that are um, that are taken in, in those couple of minutes. Um, again, they so here going into particularly the, the occupation, right? Um, and looking at the hours that they work, that's almost about 10 hours a day, right? Ranging anywhere between six hours to 13 hours a day. And those are mostly your milkers who are milking, you know, 12 hours a day and working six days a week. So a lot of them are six days on, one day off, and that's how they rotate all the way through. Um, not a lot of them had paid sick time, but I will say this number here um, is, is pretty, um, is, is a little bit biased because some, this was during COVID, right? So people were getting time off um, and they were getting stipends right, like extra bonuses to, to stay working, um, and they were getting time to take off while they were sick. Now, this is not something that is that is a normal practice in agriculture, but it was happening because of COVID. So it would be interesting to repeat this number now um, that we're not in, in a declaration of emergency um, to see how this number has, has shifted. And, and we will be testing that out with our, our larger um, survey that we just launched. As far as living conditions, um, the majority of them were married with children. They were renting in the U.S., um, which is very, uh, very common. Um, and a lot of them had employer housing. And these numbers right here were linked to those H-2A visa workers and TN visa workers, right, that have to be housed by the employer. Um, so this, again, is common to the H-2A TN requirements for um, for those visas. A lot of them were living with their coworkers. Um, and then you had some multi-generational homes, uh, which we, we see this number being much higher in the Rio Grande Valley, where you do have these multi-generational multi homes. Um, but in this case, it's a little bit harder because a lot of them do leave their families behind to go to the panhandle and then come back, especially your visa workers. On average, there was about uh, four and a half residents per household, but it ranged anywhere from one individual living by themselves to 12 individuals, um, including self, right, in, in a household. So that's a lot that could be uh, linked here to the, to the employer housing, right, having these barn dominiums where you can house uh, many workers. As far as the economic status, you had people who, um, we're making on average $13 with 40 cents, give or take two um, and, and 80 cents. 
the range was anywhere from eight dollars so that's good just above the the um the minimum wage of 725 right we obviously don't want to see anything lower than that um and and up to 30. and these right here uh we ran an extra analysis this was here for your management your supervisors who were earning much higher but when we kind of averaged out the annual individual income a lot of these workers and by a lot i mean 80 percent were earning less than thirty-nine thousand dollars. when we went through the self-reported health needs assessment so we took this question from the burfus uh survey and we asked and as well as the niosh will well-being uh survey we asked you know how they perceive their health um, and a lot of them really thought their health was very good and good and this could be the healthy worker effect right where you see that, of course, workers who are doing this type of strenuous work tend to be healthier than the general population and, and therefore perceive that they're healthier than the than the um, than the normal population. A lot of them were not smokers. Um, these questions are always really hard to ask because there there's always a lot of um, dishonesty at times. I think it's really hard to admit right how much you drink or how much you smoke per day. Um, but some people are honest, right? This is alcoholic drinks per week. The range was anywhere from one to 35 drinks per week. Um, and if you can imagine mixing that with, you know, the lack of sleep here of less than seven hours, uh, eight is what we want, and a range of three to 12 hours of sleeping, plus, you know, working 12 hours a day, six days a week, one day off, um, it's not a really good combination. As far as health insurance, um, a little bit over 50% had them. Again, these are your more progressive farms and also your H2A visa workers and TN visa workers have to have insurance. Again, they have to be housed by the employer, have insurance in order to come work with these authorized visas um, and be in the States. However, even though these people had health insurance, only about a fourth actually had a primary care provider that they that they went to go see. So when we asked, you know, would you be open to attending on-farm screening? So if we brought healthcare to you, would you participate, right? And it was an overwhelming, over 90% of them saying yes. So that, that made us pretty happy. All right, so this is where, if you're falling asleep, we'll wake up for another poll. So I want you to rank, um, actually not ranked, so we're not doing. So what do you think is the most important healthcare service to dairy farm workers if it was offered on farms for free? So you're picking the number one. What do they think? What do you think is the number one most important healthcare service to them? So yes, the answer is correct. So preventative care um, was the most important health care service. But in this case, we asked them to rank it. Right, and this uh, this might be a little bit small on your screen, so hopefully you can see here my mouse. So this table four has the top five specific healthcare services that are most important, um, and then five being the least important. So preventative care was number one, lab and diagnostic care was number two, nutritional and physical fitness was uh, was number three, mental health care was number four, and workplace interventions was number five um, and we were pretty I think if we if we start at at the top I think we we were pretty impressed with the numbers of individuals who were really interested in visual and dental um, which tend to be the most expensive right um, and a lot of them waiting to go back to Mexico or be somewhere where they could actually afford vision and dental to be able to to access that um, and then on the female side, we were able to ask more specific services, right, for them to rank. Um, and a lot of the, the women reproductive health ranked in the top five out of a very big list. Um, so this is, this is, I think, something really important to work alongside our CPRIT, right, grants that we have in Texas to, to be able to leverage some of those resources to, to give females in the ag industry, mammograms and, and pap smears. And as far as men, it really stayed the same, vision and dental. So again, you see men dominating uh, these means because you have more men working in the industry. So the, the number is, is higher. For laboratory and, and diagnostic care, again, very simple, blood pressure checks and glucose checks, right? They were interested in these, the, the you know, the holy trinity, clinical trinity of, right, of 
of chronic diseases, high blood pressure, diabetes, and cholesterol. Um, so these were the ones that they were really interested in, um, as well as TB testing, which is, you know, really aligns to the, the previous work I've done with bovine TB, as well as um, HIV STD testing. Uh, nutritional classes were a big hit here. So that was almost ranked um, at one, one of the lowest ranking numbers here. Um, and this right here, them just admitting, right, that that there is a need for anxiety and depression uh, treatment uh, is, is huge. And so this is something that we'll be implementing um, into our, our on-site health screenings that I'll talk about in a bit. And then lastly, workplace interventions. And this is good, right? Health and safety training. This is another thing that we do. We have a current OSHA grant that we're doing um, in the Rio Grande Valley with, with uh, bodega and farm workers on vaccine preventable infectious diseases. So it's good to know that workers are interested in, in health and safety training on site. Oh, okay. So before we go to the next slide, um, we're gonna do one last poll before we kind of roll through and end. So we're at the 30 minute mark here. So where do you think that dairy farm workers in the Texas Panhandle obtain their health information from? So we are actually Incorrect. So for this particular population, again, cannot be generalized to the rest of the, the Western U.S. dairy industry, obtaining health information was mostly from the Internet and social media, right? So if you put these together, it's just about 50 percent, a little bit over 50 percent. Um, and so, yeah, to us, it was it was not surprising because we were in the middle of the pandemic. Again, this is something that I would like to, to ask again, um, which we are going to now that we're not in this uh, state of emergency and, and pandemic, um, to see if this has changed, right? Because a lot of people were getting their, their information from Facebook, from TikTok, um, or from, from, uh, from YouTube. So it'll be interesting to see if it's shifted more to families and friends, which traditionally um, is something that, that we see in the Hispanic community. As far as on-site health screenings, again, we asked if we would open these to families, right? Trying to do that family-based approach, um, if their families would attend. And 90% of them said yes. Um, and and this, is, this is kind of a key here for a lot of that turnover rate that we see in the dairy industry, which is a little bit over 300%, is 93% of them said that if these on-site screenings were offered right, on an annual basis, they would continue to work for the current employer. And I really wish that this would have had a little bit more of a qualitative approach because I've, I would have captured a lot of really good information of, of workers telling us, you know, because this, this gives us some dignity, right? This gives us respect. It makes us feel like our employer cares about us. Um, and that we're worth bringing these services on site, um, which was very beautiful to hear, but unfortunate that we were not able to capture it with a simple, right, yes or no question. Um, and we had some time here to ask about COVID and the vaccines. And again, remember this was April, 2020, we didn't know much about it, but I did ask, you know, if they knew how to prevent transmission and keep themselves safe. So a little bit over 95% of, uh, of them said yes. And then we asked them if the vaccine became available, right? Because vaccines were not out, would you get your vaccine? Um, and 86.4% and of them said yes. So these were really good numbers, which motivated us for uh, the on-site clinics that we did after that. So really to sum this up, we there was a need to characterize this because it really helped us to put this, this larger grant together to look at their occupational profiles, to look at their living, their economic conditions, and really determine which health services we need to bring and if it was feasible, which the answer was yes, right? Um, an overwhelming yes from, from workers. And we were also able to, and the data's not here, but do a, a small needs assessment with um, with owners and their answer was yes, we would host you, right? If it was for free, absolutely. You can come in and we'll lend you some space and some time and, and you know, we'll, we will welcome the families as well, um, which is what we did. We, we were able to vaccinate, you know, over 3,000 ag workers with the help of employers on site 
as well as including their families in the Panhandle and the Rio Grande Valley. So it it was true, right? And we were able to, to, to make that work. So what do we find, right? What are the conclusions from, from this needs assessment and this pilot? I mean, immigration status in general, and we know this, and I know I'm preaching to the choir, it's, it's a social determinant um, of health that's really rooted in public health and how we do public health. It's rooted in, in economic and political inequities as we saw all through 2020, 2021, and 2022. Um, the demographics were consistent with previous demographics that we've seen in that area, um, except for the Guatemalan Quiche speaking representation. That was very, very low. Um, that could have been sampling, but we tried to you know, sample on 22 different farms. It just depends, again, on where people are migrating, where they're moving. Um, a lot of, of uh, especially communities, even Mexicans, Guatemalans, uh, Salvadorians try to find their own community, you know, within each other for that social support and, and to avoid that social isolation. So we might not have hit towns where you had um, a high number of, of, uh, of Guatemalans that spoke Quiche. Again, this new hiring trend, a trend of H2A visa workers is something that I think we're going to keep an eye on. Um, I think employers are are uh, frustrated with our immigration process and it really deterring their their workforce. And so they're going through, you know, this very challenging application process just to make sure that they have um, a stable a stable workforce. Um, so as far as a recruitment strategy here for employers, I mean, on, on health screenings, again, people said 93% would stay and they would give them a reason to stay. So this is just one of the recruitment strategies that they can use, right? Bringing on services to the farm to make sure that workers are, are healthy and safe. Uh, they perceive their health to be better than, than Texans. Uh, which is not a surprise again with that that uh, healthy worker bias and being able to you know work and milk uh, uh, cows for 12 hours. I don't think I can do that, right? And I think I'm pretty healthy, but um, their perceived health was was much higher than than Texas. Um, a lot of them were close to the poverty threshold for 2020. So we compared the threshold of $31,000 for a family of five. 39,000 is pretty close to that. Um, and so they they were pretty close to living on that on that threshold in, in 2020 for Texas. Um, and then insurance coverage is still low. And again, we've surveyed from farms that, um, that are pretty progressive. So this number, we know 55.5 is pretty high. Um, and also then you have the bias of the, the H-2A visa workers. But in, in the U.S., um, insurance coverage is about 92% in, in 2019, and so um, we'd love to compare those rates again. We're still way below that, um, so there's a lot of work to do in, in this industry. And this picture here on the left side, I just love to put it because this is, it's a little bit of a pep talk that um, this, this individual is giving herself. This is, a, this is the apron that milkers put on before they go on so that they don't get splattered on. Um, and by splattered, I mean feces and, and urine, as well as milk. Um, and it's, it's, you know, it, it's a little reminder to her that, you know, she's being, she's being protected by, um, by her creator and, you know, that she shouldn't have any fear and, and that she's going to, you know, have, have, be brave and, and have virtue. And so I, I, when I saw it in the restroom, I just loved it so much. I took a picture of it. Um, and it just it reminds me, right, of the work that we do every day. Um, and here kind of lastly to, to wrap it up with this last slide before I show you a couple of resources that we have. Um, and of course, these slides have been shared with you. Um, you know, what about these on-farm screenings? So with this pilot, we were able to apply to um, a larger five-year grant. So we'll be able to follow up. We're doing um, this survey with 1,200 dairy farm workers in Western U.S. and then doing on-site health screenings for 600 dairy farm workers in the New Mexico Panhandle area. And so we're just launching that. We were just out this last month recruiting. Um, so we'll start with a survey and then sometime in October, November, we'll start the, the screenings on-site and we'll do, right, what we found was that people wanted to check their, um, 
their their A1C levels to check their uh, blood pressure, to check cholesterol levels, mental health screenings, nutritional courses, on-site safety. So we'll really try to wrap that up into um, as much as a, a comprehensive uh, screening for them. And we'll, again, really leverage the resources from the community-based organizations, Texas DSHS in that area, um, all the different community clinics and what they can offer so that we can have this traveling show right on the road. Um, things that we have to keep in mind, right, and that we did keep in mind as we were planning this was make sure that this is a family-based medicine approach, right? Invite the families without them and without the family group and the unit. We're not going to be able to get much far. Um, we need to involve, like I said, these local health departments, CBOs, different academic institutions, leverage grants, leverage funds. Um, and we have to in include the industry as well. We can't work without the dairy industry. We can't work without producers. We have to meet halfway um, and be able to understand all perspectives in order to be successful. Um, we need to include point of care testing again for diabetes, hypertension, CBD. We're also doing kidney function. We're um, one of our one of the PIs. He is a um, a physical therapist, so he's going to be doing musculoskeletal um, exams mental health screenings. We'll have a, um, you know, or some interaction there with uh, Texas Panhandle Centers. And we have to make sure that our staff um, is linguistically, culturally, and literacy appropriate, right? Meeting workers where they are. Um, and then we have to be very intentional about referring abnormal results. So we will have, you know, thinking back into those, all those barriers that we listed at the beginning that we took that poll on, is that we, we, give them information about the local health centers. You know, when are they open? When are they closed? What's the phone number? Do they have an adult safety network? Do they accept your insurance? Having this information lined up and setting them up with a CBO that can help them out um, is, is gonna have to be very intentional in order to help out someone who might have an abnormal result in our health screening. Um, and, and, you know, also provide health education. Again, it has to be, uh, linguistically, culturally, and literacy appropriate. Make sure that this health education uh, meets them where they are and that it's able to serve its purpose. Um, and with all this in mind, I think the number one thing that we wanted to keep in mind was that we, what was paramount was to dismantle these systemic barriers, right, in order to organize these screenings. That each of those barriers that we listed at the beginning was checked off when we were planning these, um, these on-farm screenings. So it's 10.42. I am just about done here. I just want to share some resources. This, this particular presentation um, has been published as a paper. So here is the name. It's at, in the Journal of Agromedicine, and you can access it with this QR code. Um, and again, these the, the slides are going to be made available to you, so you can always take a picture of this later. I also want to uh, show you on our outreach page for the Southwest Center for Occupational and Environmental Health, we have English and Spanish version of the OSHA vaccine preventable infectious disease. And, and these are small little clips. This first one is a big YouTube video. Um, and then the rest are, you know, talking about the flu, the uh, tetanus, TB, hep A, hep B, monkeypox, COVID. And these are short YouTube videos um, talking about, you know, again, meeting workers where they are using cartoons, using common language to really try to talk about why it's important to get vaccinated with these vaccines. And so you can find it in our outreach program page um, it, using this QR code. And then lastly, talking about, you know, providing resources for workers that they know where things are in their community. So take Bailey County right here. Bailey County is a small county in the Panhandle. Um, we were able to create, with the help of the Texas Epidemic Public Health Institute, um, which is headquartered at, uh, at uh, UT Health Houston School of Public Health, as well as the University of Texas El Paso, to create these lists here. So these are a couple of um, Panhandle, South Texas, and El Paso counties resource lists in English and Spanish for every one of these counties. And we just finished actually the resource list that connect El Paso all the way to Star County, which is in the Rio Grande Valley. So now we have 
all the US Mexico counties, we have resources for all of them and we're adding an additional module of these uh, in, in mental health services. So you can see here, right? COVID testing and flu COVID vaccine sites, um, sitios para la prueba de la vacuna de COVID. So you see everything's in English and Spanish, um, something you can put on your fridge so that you know where to go. There's things like funeral assistance, legal aid, Wi-Fi services, housing expenses. And again, this particular county is very, very tiny. So there aren't a lot of resources, but we can always give them, especially for people from Bailey, um, we can give them a flyer for Parmer because it's the county right next door and Parmer has a little bit more resources. So it's really getting to know your communities um, and knowing what their needs are, but these are resources that we're gonna be using um, in these health screenings. And if you want, if you're from Texas and you work in any of these counties and you want to um, download these resource lists, they're available for free um, on our website at the Texas Public Health, Epidemic Public Health Institute or TEFI. And here's the QR code where you can, um, where you can gather that information. And that's it. And Brandon, I think you're going to be proud of me because you said for me to finish at 1045 and it is 1045. <laughs> Thank you so much for your presentation. Um, would like to now open it up for some questions. Um, so if you want to go ahead and ask some questions, please go ahead and share them into the chat. And I'll be reading them off to uh, Dr. Annabelle Rodriguez so she can go ahead and answer them. And let's, I'm just going to wait for the question slide to get on the screen. Perfect. Thank you so much for that. So the first question that we have here is, where did you get the staff for the on-farm screenings? And if some health issues were discovered, how did you contact the person? Yeah, so this is something that we, this is uh, Margie I see here. Um, so we are just starting these on-site health screenings. We were doing vaccine clinics before um, and the staff, I, it's, it's taken the probably almost decade that we've worked to make connections with local community partners. There's in particular, I can think of um, Sembrando el Sueño is a new group. It's about three years old um, and it's, it sits under Family Support Services of Amarillo and they have just amazing staff that do work just for ag workers. And so it's connecting with them leveraging resources, adding them on grants, um, including them in trainings and meetings, contracting them out or doing a subcontract with them. Um, so it's taken a lot of um, a lot of legwork, a lot of trust, a lot of patience, a lot of you know feedback to get to the point where we are. Um, our team was never this this big. And then as far as if they had a health issue. So we're, we're well prepared for that. As I mentioned um, on my last slide, is being very intentional about referring people out. And we what the plan is, is that we will keep their phone number and we will call them a couple weeks after to see if they have followed up with their doctor. And if they haven't and they need help, then we will connect them with Sembrando el Sueño. And Sembrando el Sueño will guide them because this is part of what their services do. We'll guide them and go to the doctor with them if they need to call the doctor for them, translate for them, whatever is needed, almost like a health advocate for them so that they can um, they can get the, the help that is needed. I hope that was able to answer your question, Margie. Thank you. Brady, the next question that we have here is... What was the process of referral if more health care was needed? And I believe you did answer that a little bit in your last response. Yes. So we'll follow up with them and we'll link them over with Sembrando el Sueño, who will basically play the role of, um, as the nonprofit that they are, that their health advocate, um, and link them with local resources in the area. But And we'll also use those TEFI resource lists to be able to identify you know, what areas um, they need help in or if they need to go to Lubbock or they need to go to Amarillo for uh, for specialty services. We have another question here. How many health screenings are planned each year? That's a great question. So we're doing about 200 health screenings each year. 
And that's the amount of funding that we have, but we're hoping to be able to, um, to get free stuff. I always love free stuff. I love free vaccines and, and free um, admin of vaccines and, and other services. So if we can get our hands um, in the meantime on any you know collaborations that we can do to get to get more um, hands on deck, then we will we will continue doing um, more than 200 a year. Developed at the Lister Hill National Center for Biomedical Communications, the NLM Scrubber is a free tool used for clinical text de-identification. It can be downloaded directly from its website and run locally without any installation or internet connection. This tool uses natural language processing to find identifying information and replaces it with labels. For more information, please visit www.nnlm.gov. We have another question in the chat. Is the decline in primary care in rural Texas impacting patient care? So I can't talk about patient care because I don't have that data, but I know that there are some hospitals closing down, clinics closing down um, in the panhandle. And I foresee this impacting us being able to refer um, workers, I know it's impacted our resource list, right? We have to remove people and reprint them, and it, it, it's a lot. Um, when you lose a, a clinic or a hospital or a service in the area that people are dependent on. So I do foresee it being a big impact. I got the next question here. Did the vaccine clinics provide all vaccines or just COVID? That's a great question. So we started with just COVID at the beginning, and then I was able to get free stuff, which again, I love free, anything free that I can get um, for, for my ag workers, I love. So we started then adding flu vaccine, then we added Tdap, because um, we were able to justify that they work with heavy equipment. And then we were able to get uh, the pneumonia series, and then we were able to get Hep A, Hep B, then we were able to get MMR. Um, and I think that's where it stopped. And we weren't able to get monkeypox um, because they had to go into the, because of the stock was so low. Uh, for those who were interested, we just referred them to their local health department. And these vaccines, by the way, were available not just for workers, they were available for anyone uh, living in their home. We even had workers from other dairy farms coming in and saying, hey, we heard there's free vaccines. I'm in my lunch break. Can I get vaccinated? Um, and this was a way to, to really just improve access and relationships in the community. But also what we were seeing is that there was hesitation on COVID vaccines, and they were already taking a couple steps back. It's like, oh, what about the other vaccines? And starting to question them. So this was a way of, of re-educating, right? And having these modules about vaccine preventable infectious diseases that, you know, hey, we've been vaccinating with Tdap our whole lives. You get, you know, you get a booster every 10 years. It's completely normal. So it's re-educating and trying to move forward um, without inflicting that fear. Following all up with that answer, I do have a question um, from myself. What how did you go ahead and kind of introduce yourselves to the farm workers who were a bit more apprehensive of your presence? Yeah, that's and that's every day too, because the turnover rate is so high. As I said, I think the last time we checked was about a little bit um, over 300% in the industry. Um, and if you do the math, that's a lot. It's just workers filtering through um, you know, these farms. And so a lot of them don't know me, even though I've been going to the same farm for, like I said, almost a decade, they have zero clue what I've brought in the past or what we've done in the past. So it's a lot of just going in the first day and just saying hi, asking before, you know, giving anything or asking for anything in return, you know, just being friendly. We take a couple donuts sometimes or some fun. Um, but it takes a lot of trust from the management and the leadership on the farm. So if we're able to get into the farm, you know, using 
um, the collaboration of our dairy extension specialist, then now the owner trusts us because they trust the, the extension specialist. And then so the owner will refer us to the manager. The manager is usually um, Hispanic male who's been there for 30 plus years, bilingual. Then once we get in with the manager, we explain a little bit to the manager, hey, we're trying to do vaccines. What do you think? And then the manager will be like, all right, let's talk to the workers. And so the workers trust the manager. So it's almost like a trust on trust game, um, a domino effect of, of what we try to rely on. Um, it's tedious, but it's but it's worth it when you when you get the right outcome. Thank you. And I have the last set of questions here for you. Did you get feedback from the farm owners after the health clinic visits and these other services were offered? And were the owners interested in continuing to host the clinics and support their workers' health needs? Yes, absolutely. Um, and it's gotten easier to do other things. Um, so the feedback, to answer the first uh, block of the question, the feedback was really positive. They wanted us to come back, which is good, right? You always you want to always want to be invited again. Um, and and it's gotten easier to do other programs that are not about health services. So currently, my team um, has allocated three million dollars of one-time $600 payments for ag workers from the USDA. So this is not a stimulus; it's a reimbursement for the work that. Uh, workers, ag workers in particular, did during the pandemic. A lot of them didn't receive a stimulus um, like the rest of us. So this is a this is a reimbursement for any wages lost. Um, you know, if they had sick time off and it wasn't paid, I remember that stat. It was only about thirty percent. So what about the seventy percent, right? That lost wages and had to stay home for fourteen days, um, or had to go to the hospital and not provide for their family. Six hundred dollars is not a lot. Uh, but it's a start, and I think it's it's great. It's a great initiative that the USDA is doing, and so our team uh, to date has uh, given a little bit over $2 million of these payments, so we'll run all the way through September of, of next year, um, and so it's projects like this, right, where we said, hey, is it okay if we come in and, and do these payments, right, while for the employer, it might be a little bit tricky of mm, if they give them payment, will they come into work tomorrow? But they're still trusting us, right, to go to go in there and, and help out their their employees. Yes, thank you so much for your answer. Um, so that's it right now for our questions portion of this presentation. Thank you to everyone for joining us today and special thanks to Dr. Annabel Rodriguez for sharing your expertise with us. If you have any more questions for Dr. Rodriguez, please be sure to contact us or her directly and we will try our best to get the answer for you. We look forward to seeing you all next at next month's Health Bites with Region 3. Thank you for listening. Health Bites podcast was produced by the network of the National Library of Medicine, Region 3. This podcast is eligible for one CE from the Medical Library Association. Visit the link in the episode description to claim your MLA CE.